morning we're starting a little sort of a mini-series of sorts. We, uh, we had been in a series called Family Matters for, gosh, probably 14, 14 weeks or so, I think, and we tried to cover a lot of stuff. We covered, you know, a lot of things with raising kids and raising a godly family and how to lead a godly family. And um, <clears throat> I encourage you, if you have children, uh, I encourage you to go, that you're raising, you know, currently, I encourage you to go back and even re-listen to it. Just uh, some of the things that, um, that, are in, that were in there that we discussed, you're going to need to hear multiple times. And it doesn't matter how good of a parent you are or how long you've been doing it. It's just good to be reminded of those things uh, that we already know and uh, encouraged in that direction even more. You know, sometimes when we meditate on something, it helps us get our mind right where maybe we, we knew something, but we kind of got off of it for a while. And by meditating on it, it helps us get our mind right on that issue. And it's kind of what we're going to do this morning, actually. We're going to do a little mini-series called The Sacraments. And I say mini-series because it'll probably only be two weeks. There's, there's two sacraments in the Christian faith, baptism and communion. And we're going to be talking, we're going to be spending, I think a week on each of those, and so this morning is communion. We're going to be talking about what communion is, why we take communion, um, what, what the Lord's Supper is, that sort of thing. So first of all, what is a sacrament? Well, the word literally means a ceremony or ritual that is sacred or holy. So I think sometimes um, in an effort as Protestant Christians you know, we sort of rebel against ritual a little bit. Anything that becomes too ritualistic, we sort of start to deny it because there's always this tendency that when you're, when you're participating in a ritual, that it can, it can lose its meaning and it can lose its power, right? Anything that you just do over and over again. It's kind of like getting your wife flowers on Valentine's Day. You know, you just every year you get her flowers and it means something. But if it's just Maybe if you don't ever get her flowers any other time of the year, it could kind of lose its power a little bit. It can lose its effectiveness. And that's why flowers out of the blue sometimes are a little more powerful than Valentine's Day, which I think what I've learned is you better do both. But anyway, uh, if, you, if you do it on Valentine's or you do it out of the blue, it has a little more power because you sort of broke the ritual, right? You, you, so you're not just doing this because it was a ritual. And in the Christian faith, I think for those of that, us that you know, or Protestant, meaning not non-Catholic, uh, that we have sort of rebelled a little bit against ritual. Anything that's too ritualistic can lose its power, and we know the danger of that, right? Because Jesus criticized the Pharisees over and over and over again about their rituals and about, you know, they do all these things, but they've lost the meaning, they've lost the power, they've forgotten why you were supposed to be doing these things in the first place. And so there is the truth in that, but what I want to do for you this morning is I want to refresh the, the power that is actually in the ritual. Okay? And that's what a sacrament is. It is a ceremony or ritual that, has, uh, that is sacred or is holy. So let me just tell you a few things about the sacrament of communion. First of all, uh, well, this applies to both sacraments actually. This applies to communion and baptism. First of all, they are symbols. Okay? But they are not empty symbols. They do actually carry power, which we're going to get into in just a moment. Uh, they actually do carry power to uh, affect us, bless us, change us. They do carry power, but they are just symbols, meaning that they do not convey salvation in any way. Okay? You, cannot, 
You cannot receive communion in order to be saved, or you can't be baptized in order to be saved. In other words, if it's not like you're unsaved before baptism, and then you receive salvation because you were baptized. Not at all. And I, I clarify that because some of us maybe were taught that, depending on what tradition you grew up in. But biblically speaking, baptism does not convey salvation. Communion does not uh, convey salvation. It has no salvation. Uh, it has no saving power, in other words. What it does is it testifies to the reality that's already happened in you. All right, So I'm baptized because I'm saved. I get baptized publicly as a profession of my faith before all of the body of believers as a testimony to the fact of the power and the, the, born, the uh, being born again that has already happened on the inside of me. I receive communion the Bible says, as a proclamation and as a testimony, I have received the blood of Christ. I have been changed by the blood of Christ. I am a partaker in the cross. So it's a symbol, but, and it carries power, but it cannot convey salvation. On the other hand, not only does it not convey salvation, it does not guarantee salvation. So you can be baptized and not be saved. Okay, you, can, you can have been water baptized and not be saved. Why? Because the person who baptized you, uh, they don't know whether you're saved or not. This, that's between you and God. You're saying, I'm saved, I want to be baptized. Fine, we, we baptize you. You know, in the book of Acts, the Bible says that uh, 3,000 people were saved in one day, one time on a sermon, which that wasn't the norm, but that did happen one time right around the, uh, you know, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the very beginning. 3,000 people were saved and baptized, it says. Well, did they do like an interrogation for every person and go, now, is this one really saved? No. They all said, hey, we believe. They said, fine, you're all getting baptized. There was no interrogation, all right? There was no, uh, you know, there was no uh, litmus test, sort of, to see does this person qualify for salvation or not. In other words, it just took it at their word. They're saved, we believe they're saved, and so we baptize them. Same thing with communion. We're going to see that in just a moment. Now, do I believe that there's certain people that should not receive communion? Yes, I do. And we're going to talk about those people this morning. First of all, it would be anyone who's not saved. If, you, if you're not saved, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, okay, if you've not been born again, you shouldn't be baptized or receive communion. Okay, it's for believers only. So let's get that straight, that first of all, these things cannot convey salvation, and secondly, they do not guarantee salvation. So you, you know, just don't think you're, don't think you're safe, so to speak, just because you received communion this morning, or because you got, water. well, I was water baptized when I was 12. Well, if you were saved and then water baptized, great. If you've continued in that salvation and you've continued living it, great. But the fact that you were baptized when you were 12, or 10, or 8, or 30, doesn't actually guarantee you salvation one way, one way or the other. What it is, is your personal testimony saying, I have received this. So, they are outward symbols of an inward reality. That is the purpose of them. Um, so what are the sacraments? Again, baptism and communion, but today we're going to talk specifically about communion, and if I get through it all today, then we'll talk about baptism next week, or else we'll finish part two of, uh, of, of communion. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in super long-winded sermons. I guess it depends on your definition of long-winded, 
my definition is about 43 minutes, somewhere in there, 43 to 50 minutes, okay, is about my sweet spot. Any more than that, we just come back next week, okay? By the way, I didn't grow up in a church like that. It was just, you stayed as long as it took to get it out, and some sermons were longer than others, like, you know, like labor, you know, giving labor. It was like, you just never knew how long it was going to take, but John chapter 6, verse 47 I always get amens when I say I'm not going to preach very long. I'm like, I don't. Anyway, John 6, 47. This is going to give us a little bit of a foundation of why we take communion. Even though it doesn't mention communion specifically, it is going to explain to us the principle behind it. So John 6, 47. Jesus had a big crowd of people at this point. He had a lot of people following him. The Pharisees were there large crowd following him. And one of the things I noticed about Jesus' ministry is that when he would get the biggest crowds is when he would say the most offensive thing. He would get the biggest crowds, and it's almost like it would start making him nervous. He would see these huge amounts of people following him. He's like, I know y'all ain't all saved. I know y'all are not all following me for the right reason, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something right now that's going to challenge you to your core. And those who are really following me, they're going to stick around, and it's going to sort of weed out those who are just playing church type, type thing. And this was one of those moments. So verse, uh, John 6, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Let's stop there. How complicated is salvation? It's pretty simple. He who believes has eternal life. What if you believe but you never got baptized? You still have eternal life. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. It's a command that we are to follow because we love the Lord and there's power in it. There's blessing in it. It's very important. It doesn't convey salvation. What conveys salvation? Belief. He who believes has eternal life and then there's a period. He, he who believes has eternal life, period. So, but, but then if we believe... There's going to be fruit. And that's another sermon. We won't talk about that. So belief, it's not empty belief. If you truly believe, it's going to change you and there'll be fruit in your life that prove you really have belief. Verse 48, he says, uh, verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So he's communicating to a Jewish audience and he's explaining that the miraculous manna that came out of heaven and sustained them in the wilderness was actually a type or a foreshadowing of the body of Christ. That manna sustained them every day. It was the reason why God did it the way that he did it. He, remember he told them, he said, you're going to get just enough to carry you for that day. You get, don't get any leftovers. All right? If you try to get leftovers, they're going to just rot. You've got to come back every day. You've got to get that bread and it's going to sustain you for that day. He tells them, he says, for you, I am that bread. I am that manna, that supernatural bread from heaven that sustains you every single day. You can't have one experience and it sustain you for the rest of your life. He's, talking, he's, he's making that connection that in order to walk with God properly... It's a daily feeding on the Word of God, a daily communion with God, a daily fellowship with God, a daily partaking in the bread of life. We've all 
experienced this. Some of us had experiences with God way back when, and then we fell away. We stopped going to church, stopped reading our Bible, and you could tell the difference in your life. So it's not a one-time experience. It's a daily coming back to the Lord. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread, meaning I've got to come back every day. And I've got, to, I've got to be, you're not getting resaved every day, but what you're doing is you're, you're refreshing your spirit, you're feeding your spirit, you're nourishing your spirit, you're, you're keeping that communion with God so that there's no broken fellowship. It's your lifeline. So he says, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, they died. But this is the bread which comes down of heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. In other words, when you partake of Christ, the bread of life, you receive eternal Life. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, when you hear that phrase, eternal life, it doesn't really move you that much. It doesn't really shake you that much. You go, yeah, okay, we receive eternal life. But, you know, for centuries, people sought for eternal life, like the fountain of youth. How many of you saw Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? You know, they're going in the, and they're trying to get the special cup to get the water, and they're like killing each other. They're fighting because they want to get eternal life. Guess what? We have real eternal life. This is not imaginary. This is not a movie. This is real. We have eternal life in Christ. Meaning, we're never going to die. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to leave this earth. Yeah, your physical shell, your physical body is going to pass away. But it's actually a graduation. It's a promotion onto greater and bigger and better things. We have eternal life. I don't have to be afraid of death. This is, this is, a, you know, this is a big revelation for people. I mean, we get used to it all. Oh, I have eternal life. This is a big deal. I don't have to be afraid of death. I don't have to worry about dying. Death is not at all the worst thing that happens in this life. The worst thing in this life is to die and not have eternal life. And Jesus explains to them, he says, he who believes has eternal life. And he says, if you eat of this bread, he says, you will not die. Now, he didn't convey to them right in that moment that he was talking about eternal life when he said to them, so that you may eat of it and not die. So maybe they had some misconceptions. Verse 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My physical body was going to be crucified, beat on that cross. Then the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, uh, hold on a minute. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're getting a little nervous here, because at first they were thinking in spiritual terms, but then he goes to the flesh, and he says, my flesh is the bread of life. So the Jews begin to argue, oh, hold on a second. How can this man give us, is he literally talking about eating his flesh? Like we're talking about cannibalism? This is very strange. Now, you would think this is the moment that Jesus might clarify what he's talking about, but he doubles down. This is how he does, because he's, he's separating those who truly believe. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, this just kind of sent them scattering like cockroaches. They didn't want nothing to do with that. They, this scared them off. So he had this big crowd, They scared, and then the 12 were there. <laughs> and I don't remember which one of them it was that spoke up and said, Lord, this is a hard saying. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave too? 
No, we said, we don't have anywhere else to go. We're going to just stick with you. He said, good idea. So he explains it later, and by sticking around, they did get revelation of that, what he was talking about. We get lots more revelation on what he was talking about throughout the rest of the New Testament. But notice these, he begins with this phrase, and he ends with this phrase. So the very beginning, he says, he who believes has eternal life. At the very end, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how do you eat his flesh and drink his blood? It's through belief. And this is what we find out in the whole New Testament, is that we receive eternal life. We partake in Christ. We partake in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, by believing that He died on the cross and paid the debt for our sin, by believing that He was resurrected three days later, and that through that whole process, our redemption, our salvation, our forgiveness was purchased. And because of that, we became sons and daughters of the living God who have and will experience eternal life. That's how we receive it. That's how we partake. The, one of the greatest revelations of the New Testament is that the, from heaven's perspective, it wasn't just Jesus that was being crucified. Actually, the whole reason that this worked is because the work that happened on the cross was called, it was substitutionary, meaning that Jesus was substituted for you. Meaning, the price that he paid, it was as if you paid it. The crucifixion that he experienced, it was as if you experienced it. God credited it to your account. First, and again, I can, we can't read all these scriptures, we don't nearly have enough time, but this is the whole revelation of the New Testament, is that your wicked, sinful life was placed on him. And his righteous and perfect life was placed on you. There was an exchange that happened at the cross. He became sin, who knew no sin, that you may be, may be made the righteousness of God. So there was an exchange that happened. Our sin, my sin, your sin, the world's sin, were placed on him, and he was punished for it. He was crucified for it. And then his righteousness, right standing with God, was placed on you. So when you stand before God, you don't, you, through your belief in that process and your acceptance of that process, you don't stand before God as a wicked sinner. Don't ever say that. Oh, we're all just wicked, ugly, dirty sinners before God. No, that's who I used to be. But that's a, that's a misunderstanding. That, that shows that you don't have the full revelation of what happened at the cross. You're not a wicked, dirty sinner before God. That, that spits in the face of everything that God did. I'm not a wicked, dirty sinner. Even, even if I feel that way, my faith, my belief is in the fact that, no, I am righteous before God. My sin was placed on Him, and it was paid for at the cross. I don't have to pay for my sin. I don't have to offer up penance for my sin. I don't have to give to the poor for my sin. I don't have to do lots of good deeds for my sin. Why? Because the work that happened on the cross was sufficient, it was final, it was complete. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. It's paid for at the cross. What happened at the cross? Sin was dealt with. And not just for those who believe, actually. It was dealt, it was dealt with and it was paid for for everyone. And all they have to do is accept it. And our call is just to announce that to the world. Say, listen, your sin's already been 
taken care of. Please don't reject it. All you have to do is believe and receive it. It's there. It's already been taken care of. So he who believes that, the Bible says, partakes of the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ and becomes born again and they receive eternal life. They receive eternal life. So communion symbolizes this process. When we, when we take this little cup this morning and there's the bread and there's the juice when we, when we take it, we're saying this is a symbol of I have fed, I am continuing to feed on the body and on the blood of Christ. So communion actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, but communion actually, it looks backwards to what happened on the cross. It celebrates presently what's happening through the cross, and it looks forward to the future fulfillment and completion of what happened on the cross. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So let's read some more scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Paul's explaining communion to the church. And he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, the more you go into the revelation of the New Testament, you find out that it wasn't just Jesus who died on the cross. But God identifies you with him on that cross. That you, when you believe, you are participating in the death, burial, and resurrection. It's as if you were crucified. It's as if you were buried. It's as if you were resurrected to new life. This is what baptism symbolizes. Your death, burial, and resurrection. Not Christ. When we, when we get baptized, we're not celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We're celebrating our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. That may seem like a small difference, but communion is celebrating what, what Christ has done through his blood and body. But baptism is celebrating your participation in that. So when, I, when I'm baptized, I'm saying I've been crucified with Christ. Think about Galatians 2.20. That's how Paul said it. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. Was Paul ever physically crucified? No. But he had such a revelation on it. He said, no, I've been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead and a new man came to life. A new man was resurrected to life. So Paul said the cup of blessing that we bless is a participation in the blood that was shed. It is a participation in the body of Christ. When we receive communion this morning, we are participating in what happened on the cross. We're celebrating it all over again, which is why it has power and is not just a symbol. But notice verse 21. Paul was actually correcting them in this moment because of their approach to communion. And in verse 21, he'd been talking about a specific issue with them of how they'd mixed uh, their worldliness with their life in Christ. And in verse 21, look at what he says. He says, listen, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, if you look at what he was talking about, he's talking about, he's talking about living a double life. And he's, talk, he's not talking about a Christian who sins or messes up every now and then or has, and has to have forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about. If you read the passage, he's talking about lifestyle. He's talking about a lifestyle of these Corinthians 
that even though they had professed Christ, they never fully gave up the things of this world. They never rejected certain things of this world that they should have been rejected. So he says, on Sunday you're participating in the cup of the Lord, but during the week you're participating in cup of de- the cup of demons. He says, you can't do that. Because to come to Christ is a rejection of those things. And we're going to continue talking about that, and he addresses it later. Now I want to talk about the connection between the Lord's Supper, communion, and Passover in the Old Testament. Because really, communion is actually sort of like an evolution of the Passover. And so let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. In many ways, the Christian communion is the equivalent of the Jewish Passover. So let's start here in chapter 12, verse 21. God had already, it's such a long passage, you can go back and read it for yourself, but at this point, God had already explained to Moses the point of the Passover, what it was, what it symbolized, and now Moses is explaining it to the children of Israel. And just the the brief version of it is, that we're now, through all the plagues, God has demonstrated His power in, in Egypt, and the children of Israel are about to be set free from Pharaoh, and then, you know, we're going to have the exodus. They exit out of Egypt and go into the wilderness, and there's this magnificent moment that's about to happen where God shows His full power, not just plagues of frogs and, you know, locusts and things like that. It's about to get... We're about to have the final plague. And that final plague is that the death angel is going to pass through Egypt. And the firstborn male child of every home is going to be killed. So it's very serious. It's very solemn. And that, that angel, that spirit is going to pass over the entire land of Egypt. Is going to sweep through the entire land of Egypt. And every single house the firstborn male child is going to be executed. So it's very serious. And God explains to Moses how the children of Israel are to avert that judgment off of their lives. And so this is what he's explaining in verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, that's from the lamb, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So they were to, they were to slaughter the lamb and to take the blood and apply the blood to the doorposts of their home. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that these instructions are very important. <laughs> and you better follow them down to the letter. Because if you step outside of that doorpost, when he said not to step out, you're going to get the same judgment as the, the Egyptians. Okay, if you don't follow this exactly as he said, it's not going to be good. You know that from reading other places in the Bible, that when God gave instructions, when he gave specific instructions, it wasn't like today, you know, where people come back, now tell me what you said one more time. Like, you should have been listening. You should have wrote it down. This is important. So he said, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Y'all remember when the angel told Lot's wife not to look back at Sodom? What happened? She turned to a pillar of salt. All she did was turn around and look. Yeah, but you disobeyed. You remember when Moses struck the rock? When God said, speak to the rock? 
there was a consequence. So when God speaks, is very and that's part of it. We, we may think, oh, well, that's harsh. Yeah, but we don't have enough reverence and fear for the word of the Lord. When God speaks, it's very serious. So he gave him very clear instruction. He said, take the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the home. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So... This is the Passover, and the Passover was to be celebrated every year afterward as a remembrance of what happened, as a remembrance of uh, God delivering them out of Egypt. But here's the, here's the lesson. Now, remember, all of this was pointing forward to Christ. I mean, er everything you see like this in the New Testament was actually foreshadowing what was going to happen with Christ. The blood was applied, and it was because of that blood that judgment passed over their life. Their life was not inspected. Think about this. Their life wasn't inspected. You know, the, the angel didn't come knocking at the door and go, Now, I see the blood, but let me, uh, let me examine your, your life and let me see the details of going on. That's not how a sacrifice works. That's not how a substitution works. So he wasn't, it wasn't, there, you know, there were probably good Jews and there were probably bad Jews. There were probably some that were, you know, living according to the law very well and some that weren't living according to the law as, as much. I'm not talking even about willful rejection Okay, willful rejection of God's law and all of that. Because if you didn't believe, then presumably you wouldn't have applied the blood to your house. So belief and action are always connected. But again, that's another sermon. We're not going to get into that this morning. Here's the point. They were not passed over. Judgment did not pass over their life because of anything to do with them. The only thing they had to do was apply the blood. Once they applied the blood, judgment passed over their life. Okay, so we may have people in here this morning. Some of you have been saved for 30, 40 years. And you've been working on that Christian life, you know, all those times. And it's a little more squeaky clean than the guy that came in. And this is his first Sunday in church. And he's got a lot to clean up still. Doesn't matter. If the blood is applied to you, the blood is applied to you, judgment passes over. It doesn't matter how squeaky clean your life is or how squeaky clean it's, it's not when it comes to faith in Christ. In other words, when you put your faith in the blood, you put your faith in what happened, it's the blood of Christ that causes judgment to pass over your life. And that's what happened here. So every year, they would celebrate this. They would, they would celebrate it with their families. There was a long, drawn-out ritual with meals, and the lamb was sacrificed, and the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread, and this whole process which he describes. And, and all of it symbolized something that happened on that night. And so every time they would participate in it, he even looks forward to, he says, you know, your sons are going to ask you, why do we do this? Why, why are we doing this meal? And they were to use the meal to explain, well, we used to be slaves in Egypt. And then God came and did this. And, he, and they, they would use the meal to explain the greatness of God so that they would never forget what happened. They would never forget where they came from. They would never forget the deliverance that they had experienced. And so they would celebrate it. Now, interestingly, 1,500 years later, 
Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't plan this in a million years. We know that Jesus Christ was the Passover lamb, but what are the odds of this? 1,500 years later, on Passover, the true lamb of God was slain and his blood shed literally on Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. God orchestrated it this way. All of those celebrations of Passover, all, all those years ago, all the times they were celebrating Passover, the, one of the reasons why it worked, one of the reasons why it averted judgment off of their life is because when God saw them celebrating the Passover, He wasn't thinking about a physical lamb. He was looking forward to the real lamb. So when He saw the blood that they were shedding for Passover, He was thinking ahead, I know my son is the real Passover. I know that's going to be shed one day, that that sacrifice is going to be, and that one's going to be permanent. That one's going to be forever. It's not going to have to be done over and over again. So the night before he died, they were celebrating the Passover meal, just like we read about in Exodus. Jesus is with his disciples. They were all Jewish. And so they were celebrating the Passover. I'm trying to imagine what Jesus was thinking. Because he knows that he actually is the Passover lamb. Here I am celebrating Passover with my disciples. But this is just a type and a foreshadow of me, the real Passover lamb, and what's about to happen tomorrow. So the night before he was crucified, they're celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And this is when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. This is when he instituted this process. Matthew 26, 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, where will you have us prepare you to eat the Passover? Now they had done this. They'd been with him for several years. Every year they'd celebrated the Passover together. So they knew the ritual. They'd been doing this their whole life. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And this is why I say that communion it looks at the past, present, and future of the work of Christ. It looks back. When we take communion, there are multiple things we should be celebrating and thinking about. And at any given time that you take communion, which I don't want you to like be overwhelmed while we're taking communion, trying to, you know, just think about everything. But we take communion a lot, so maybe you can focus on one of these aspects and, you know, get the next one the next time. But communion looks back at the work of the cross, And it looks back at the moment where Christ died, the sacrifice that he paid, the blood that was shed. 
I mean, I could just think about that when I take communion and say, God, thank you for dying for in my place. Thank you that you died the death that I should have died. Thank you that you secured my, my eternity. Thank you for doing that. But it also looks at the present. When we, when we receive communion, the Bible says that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Meaning, I'm saying today I'm in union with Christ. Today, look at my family as we follow Christ. Look at our church as we follow Christ. Look at the, the fruit and the works of salvation today in my life. The ongoing work of Christ that's in my life. And then it looks forward to a day of perfect communion. And this is what Jesus mentioned right here at the very end. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's looking all the way ahead to where everything's over. All things are complete. The earth has passed away. And now we are in heaven with God. And he says there's going to be, the Bible calls this in Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we come and finally we are once and for all united with Christ for eternity. He says there's going to be a day. This is the last time I'm celebrating this meal with you in the flesh. But he said there's going to be a day. There's a day coming in the future where we will drink together again. We will eat together again in celebration of this fact. That's going to be the, the best communion meal we ever had. right? It's not going to be like a little cracker and some juice. All right? I don't even know what that's going to be like. But it's going to be amazing and it's going to be a meal where the finished and final work of Christ is celebrated it's called the marriage supper of the lamb because it's 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 going to be like a marriage reception and if you've been to a wedding you know and we do the vows and we you know we do the we perform the ceremony and then afterward there's a reception and everyone's laughing and eating and drinking and talking and dancing and there's going to be a there's a celebration of of the two becoming one there's going to be a marriage supper of the lamb the bible actually describes it in a couple places it's described in the book of isaiah it's also described in the book of revelation and i'm going to tell you it's just it's going to blow your mind some of y'all thought god was real stiff and he didn't like to party but it's going to be a fun time i mean he's looking forward to it right here he said, look, the fruit of the vine. He said, I'm going to be drinking it with you new in the Father's kingdom. We're going to be celebrating. We're going to be fellowshipping. Looking forward to that day. So when I receive communion, I can think about that. I can receive communion and say, thank God for his blood. Thank God for his body that was broken for me. I, I enjoy the fellowship I have with the Lord today. But man, I'm looking forward to that day when I'm with him forever. Thank God that this sacrifice that we're celebrating today secured that for me. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul is explaining this again. We're now in the next chapter. We were in chapter 10, now we're chapter 11. Paul's still kind of talking about this issue. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. We just read about that. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that phrase. 
you proclaim the Lord's death. Now, see, what I'm doing this morning is proclaiming. I'm standing up here. This is our traditional understanding of proclaiming. I'm standing up here, and I'm proclaiming a truth to you. He says, every time we receive communion, we're proclaiming. This is interesting. What, what are we proclaiming, and who are we proclaiming it to, and what exactly is being proclaimed? When we, what does that even mean? Every time I receive this, you could say, I'm declaring something. Every time I receive this, I'm, I'm making a statement. Every time I receive communion, I'm proclaiming something. What are you proclaiming? Who are you proclaiming it to? What is being said? Well, I look at it like this. Everything, everything that is mine through Christ, okay, healing, salvation, forgiveness, righteousness, redemption, my inheritance. Every time I receive communion, I am proclaiming those things to be true. I'm proclaiming to to sickness, I'm proclaiming there's healing through the stripes of Jesus Christ. Every time I receive communion, I'm proclaiming to guilt, shame, condemnation, wait a minute, I'm forgiven. I'm proclaiming a truth to a certain situation in my life, to anybody that'll listen. If you're listening, maybe to hell, to Satan, to whoever's listening, I'm proclaiming, no, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I'm experiencing. But here's what I know about the cross. Here's what I know about the blood. Here's what I know about the death of Jesus Christ. So when we receive communion today, we're proclaiming something. You don't have to sit back idle and go, well, this is attacking me and this is falling apart and I've got these issues going on. Yeah, but stand up and proclaim something according to the blood of Jesus Christ and what happened on the cross. Yeah, I'm experiencing that, but by faith I proclaim that these other things are true in my life. And there's power in that. That's why these symbols are not empty. There's power in that. Why? Because it's, a, it's an act of faith. Yeah. Saying, yeah, I'm experiencing this. I'm having this. I know this is a problem. But what I'm doing is I'm raising my eyes above that. And I'm looking at what Jesus did on the cross. And I'm looking at what he purchased for me. And what he literally shed his blood for. And I'm saying, I'm not going to walk around like a victim to these things. I'm going to say, wait a minute. The, the death, burial, and resurrection is greater than that. And so when I receive it, I'm proclaiming that. I'm, by faith, I'm saying, I'm not subject to these things. I'm not living this way. I proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection in my life today. And he said, as often as you do it. And he doesn't tell us how often to do it. Some of you might need to do it once a day. You might need to do it twice a day because it needs to be proclaimed a lot. He doesn't tell us how often to do it. He says, but every time you do it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death and all that comes with it. All that it bought and paid for. Every time you do it, you're proclaiming those things in your life over those situations in your life. And it's not that there's power in the cracker or the juice. There's power in what it represents. There's power in the reality that actually happened. But it gives you a physical way to say, wait a minute, his blood was shed. Wait a minute, his body was broken for this very thing that I'm dealing with. So I proclaim the Lord's death. And he says, do it all the way till he comes. You're going to have to do it over and over and over and over. And you do it all the way until he comes back. Yeah. Praise God. So we're going to do that this morning. But I want, to, I want to read to you a few more things before we jump right in. Because I've got a few more things I want to cover here. Verse 27. 
Now he goes right into this, and we don't normally read this when we take communion, but it's a very important part. Because he says, whoever therefore, therefore meaning because of what we just said, because of what we just talked about and how serious it is. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So this is very serious. He explains... So we may say, oh, well, you know, is there power in this? Apparently, because he says a few people were doing it wrong and it was affecting their physical health. So he said it is a very serious, very serious thing. And let me break this down and what I, what I think this means. If you read the whole chapter, he's talking about, he, he actually is rebuking them because of the way they were treating the Lord's Supper, the way they were treating communion. This was something they did every time they gathered, and it wasn't like we do it today. It wasn't, you know, just a little small thing. They would have literal, you know, large amounts of bread, large amounts of wine. They would come together. They would eat. They would drink. They would break bread. They would fellowship. Well, Paul rebukes them. He says, y'all are coming up. This, this whole thing has been, is a is meant to be a way to honor and reverence what Jesus did on the cross, but y'all are coming to it in such a, a fleshy, carnal way. You're not giving any reverence or respect to it. He said, so that some of you are in gluttony. You're eating everything. You, and he, said, he even mentions, he said, some of you are getting drunk. Man, imagine that at church, you know? I mean, shoot. But anyway, they had wine and bread, and they're, you know, that's how they were celebrating communion. And he said, some of you fools are coming in here and you're eating bread and you're drinking so much and drinking wine, getting drunk. And he said, the other, and then you got other people that they didn't even get anything and they didn't even have a moment to celebrate the, the true communion. He said, so you're, you're, you're disrespecting the power of this amazing sacrament that we have. And you're just counting it as common. And you're doing, you're doing the exact opposite of everything that Christ died for. So now he comes back and he says, so if you drink and eat the bread in a, in a way that is unworthy, which I believe he's referring to the way they were doing it. If you're doing it in a way that is unworthy, you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord because you treated it with disrespect. You treated it, it didn't have, you didn't have any reverence to it. Then in verse 28 he says, let a person therefore examine himself. Take time to examine your heart, examine your motives, examine your beliefs, examine your life, examine the way that you're living. If you need to repent of anything, repent. If you need to lay down anything, lay it down. If you need to change anything, right there in that moment, say, Lord, help me change this. I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Take a moment to repent. Examine yourself. For anyone, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Let's talk about that word discerning. Because if you look that word up, it literally means to separate or to distinguish one thing from another. Separate or distinguish one thing from another. So when he says if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, 
eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, what he's really saying is, if you don't distinguish what we're doing as holy and separate and not common, okay, if you don't have enough sense to recognize that what we're doing is special and holy and separate and powerful, and you, and you don't treat it like that, he said, then you're not discerning the body properly. And he said, if you do that, if you just treat it as common, or, or maybe, you, maybe you have an a irreverent or you know, joking, you, you count it as a joke or you're not serious about it. He said, that's not good. Because what we're doing is very important and it, and it deserves the utmost respect and honor. So he said, if anyone eats and drinks without that, without discerning the body, then he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, they would not be judged. So obviously there's power in this because we see the negative side of it. We see, man, if you do this wrong and you treat this with irreverence and disrespect, he said there are some negative consequences that can happen in your life. It's not clear from this that God is the one bringing those or he's just saying that that attitude opens the door in your life for these things to happen. That's not completely clear whether he's saying, you know, God is doing this or if this is going to happen as a result of you kind of opening that door and, and allowing those things to happen in your life. But either way, it shows that it's very, very serious. So, what does this mean? Okay, just kind of a brief recap. Well, first of all, it means that some of you might not should take communion this morning. It depends on... Number one, have you experienced true salvation in your life? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you been born again? Because this ritual is for those who have been born again. If, as Paul said, and this is between you and God, no one's going to come and examine your life. He said, let each person examine his own life. Okay, this is not for me to come and examine your life and tell you whether or not you should take communion. But understanding how serious it is, you should examine your own life. Because one of the Paul, things that Paul said is, he said, you should not be partaking of the table of demons and of the table of the Lord. Now, what I take that to mean is not, oh, do you have any sin in your life? But please understand, this doesn't, you don't have to be sinless to receive communion, not at all. Uh, because that's the whole point of the cross, is to cover our sin, to pay for our sin, not at all. But there is a difference between a person who sins as we all do, and there is a difference between that and a person who is habitually living in sin and is unrepentant for that sin. Meaning, I have no intention of changing. I'm doing this, I know it's wrong, and I'm not changing. I have no, I have no intention to change. That's not even the same thing as someone who has sin in their life that they hate. And they're struggling, and they repent often for it, and they ask God to forgive them, and they, they're trying to get help, and they, they want to be free from it. That's different. What I think he's talking about is someone who is living in habitual sin, and they're not even convicted about it. They know what the Word says. They know what God wants, but this is my lifestyle, and this is what I'm doing, and I, I have no intention of changing. Well, that would be, per, some, in my view, that would be a person who's not a candidate for communion. So bear that in mind. That's between you and God. So what does it mean? Well, some might should not receive communion. That's up to you. It's there, and, and, and uh, I hope that we all can participate and do, but that's between you and God. Secondly, a person is to examine himself before communion. And as we said, repent. 
make, make change. God, I, I, I'm sorry for the way I've been living. You know, and, but also examine yourself in the sense of I'm preparing my heart for this amazing thing that we're about to do. Also, I believe, these are just a few final points. Also, I believe that communion can be done at any time. I don't believe that communion can only be done at church. I don't believe it can only be administered by the pastor. I don't think you have to have any special qualifications to, to give communion. There, there's absolutely no reason that if you meet all these other qualifications that we're talking about, that you can't be at home with you and your cracker and your juice, and you sit before the Lord in your prayer time and honor God and honor the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and receive communion right in your home. And some of you need to do that. Because you need to proclaim that. You're in a place where you need to proclaim this regularly in your life. So it's one way that we can fellowship with Christ, even in our personal time. But it is intended to be a group thing. This is the way it was laid out. And actually, when they used to do it, they would all take of one loaf, and they would all drink from one cup. They stopped doing that when COVID came around, you know. But that's how they used to do it. They used to all drink from one cup. But no, they would break off the piece of bread. Why? Because it was one body and we were all partaking of the same body. It was one cup of the blood of Christ and we were all partaking of one, one cup. So we do it a little different now. Um, but it is meant to be something that we do together. And, and there's this whole mindset in the body of Christ that I think we've lost in a way. This is why Paul said it this way. He said, if one member in the body suffers, we all suffer. If one person rejoices, we all rejoice because we're all actually one. We're one body. And communion reminds us of that. Here's the last thing I want to say. If we can drink judgment on ourselves, as he said, and we can, we can become sick or ill from doing it incorrectly then how many believe we could drink blessing on ourselves if, if we could have sickness or illness come on us from not doing it correctly? Well, what about from doing it correctly and doing it right? Could we receive healing in our body? If it has the power to bring sickness from doing it wrong, I believe it has the power to bring healing for doing it right. That's why I believe there's power in this. I think if, if, if there's power in this to where there can be consequences for doing it wrong, then I believe there can be blessings for doing it right. So it's not just the negative, I think it's the positive side that when we do this this morning, I'm expecting something to happen in your life. I'm expecting something to happen in my life. Why? Because we serve a real God who died on a real cross and His blood was shed and resurrected and that created tremendous amount of power available to you and I. And what we're doing this morning is we're celebrating and remembering our participation in that.